necklace offers a wide variety of majors, but the crown jewel of MU is the Scaring School. The weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Palindrome Hannah Rogers. Hey, Hannah, how's it going? Best day ever. Best day ever? That sounds good. Well, I think that actually, you've been making fun of me about my intros lately, and I think I started getting into my (laughs) funk after they announced that Marvel and Sony were splitting over Spider-Man, but they're back together again. Kesha announced that a new album's coming out in December. It's like Christmas has come early. You, you realize you're jinxing everything, right? No, I'm not. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> uh, well, I don't want to talk too long because, you know, we got we got a good one for you tonight, folks, which I'm just going to start stealing Steve Harvey's intros for our show. But I never like when he does that, because when you say that, it's almost like, you know, our show usually sucks. But today we're doing something. Let's awesome. agree but, to veto any mention of Game of Thrones. OK, well, we should tell people what we're doing first. Sure. You can tell. them. OK, so but a year ago we did a show that was we came up with a syllabus for a comic book course live on the air we just figured it out as we went and we figured out what are we going to do what texts are we going to teach and we had a whole bunch of people together who taught comic books and we just built a course live on the air and i've always wanted to do like a sequel to that i figured well we don't have to do that with just comic books we can do this with anything so um some of our most popular shows have been we had a, we've had a series of shows on monsters in popular culture so we thought we'd do the monster class. We're going to build a monster syllabus. Sounds exciting? Yes. <laughs> and the enthusiasm died. I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't sure if that was directed at me or the one audience. To you. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's okay. Well, okay. So we have a lot of people here. So I'll introduce people who've been here before first. So returning, we have our, our regular monster experts. We have Dr. Michael Chambers. Hey, Mike. Hey. Hey, man. It's so great to be back with you guys. <laughs> uh, Mike, I, I, Mike, I've, I've met in person now as of like, you know, four days ago or something. That's right. That's right. I, I was in Pittsburgh uh, last week. Uh, the um, Humanities Center at the University of Pittsburgh was doing a little thing on my work, uh, some work that I'm doing with Mike Sell. And we uh, had a really great time. We sat down with Gavin and, and we talked for like three hours. Uh, or sorry, Matt and Mike talked. I didn't. I didn't. Do it. I didn't. <laughs> And then I even got to see the uh, spider hole and the um, excavated dumpster where the show is, is taking place. And so that was really great. <laughs> and also returning from previously from the monster shows, we have Dr. Heather Duda. Hey, Heather, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. I'm so happy to be back. And I'm really looking forward to talking about uh, syllabi. You know, this was actually one of the questions in my comprehensive exams. Huh, I did not have that. <laughs> that's actually a good question. Now, now, I mean, I'm thinking about it. That's like that's a really good exam question. Yeah, that's really it good is. I'm gonna ask you know what the follow up question was that I thought was even better. They were like, yeah, yeah, this is a great syllabus. What was the first thing that you had to cut to get down to our requirements? Ooh, yeah. Well, <laughs> so that's what we're gonna do today. <laughs> right. Enjoy reliving your exams. <laughs> The stakes are a little lower this time around. No offense, guys. <laughs> hey. Well, we also have returning. We have John Dorowski, our very first guest ever on the show. Hey, John. Hi. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. And uh, Matt, when you say monster syllabus, just to be clear, we're talking about a syllabus about monsters, not a massive syllabus that's going to scare off students. I hope not. But, you know, oh. maybe both. Hey, one, you know, <laughs> and finally, for the first time on the show, we have one of my colleagues, Nicole Aceto. Hey, Nicole. Hi, everybody. Nicole, we've been trying to get on the show for a while, um, but she's you've been listening for a while because you 
you like monsters. And well, actually, what, you know, what are you doing right now? Actually, right now, I am working with monsters accessibility, but also teaching a class on monsters, and race, and gender, and sexuality, and things like that. So, oh, wow. Oh my God, how cool is that? Yeah. So this should be interesting because everybody should have hopefully very different opinions on what monsters are and what goes into a course. And we're just going to try and argue it out, figure it out on the fly and hopefully come up with something that people, well, you know, no one's ever teaching this specific class, but hopefully the listeners can go, hey, that sounds like a good reading list. And then we'll have at the end 10 or 10 ish, maybe 11, maybe nine, but 10 ish books that we think belong on a monster syllabus. And then the listeners can go and listen to them and be smart and say that they learned it from us. Sound good? Yeah. That sounds great. All right. So when making a syllabus, the first thing we have to do, figure out is what the hell is this class? Other than the fact that it requires monsters. Do we have any ideas or do we want to figure that out as we go? Well, we need to narrow it down somehow. Actually, Matt, when you say it's about monsters, we need to define what is a monster. Because, yeah, I was just say. you know, we have mm-hmm. villains, you know, Moriarty is a villain, but is he a monster? So I don't yes. know. <laughs> right. Like my, my, yeah, like my Victorian uh, undergrad professor teaches a class called Victorian Monsters and sure Dracula is on the syllabus, but so is like all of the grotesque yeah. Dickens villains. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that um, this is a good time to bring up Jeffrey Jerome Cohen's landmark 1996 essay. Monster Culture Seven Theses, which you will find in Monster Theory Reading Culture, uh, which comes out <laughs> of uh, the University of Minnesota in '96, and uh, it's a series of essays that uh, Jeffrey Jerome Cohen put together. Jeffrey Jerome Cohen is now a dean at the uh, Dean of Humanities, I believe, at the Arizona University of Arizona, and um, he is. This essay is, I would say, a fundamental essay for defining the field, such as it is. And in this essay, he gives seven questions, really, that you need to ask of a particular cultural product to determine whether or not it's a monster. And of course, my students read this semester, so... And I'm glad you brought this up because this was, well, his work in general was um, permeates my dissertation. And I think it's an excellent essay to point to as a starting point. Yeah, I, it was on my list of potential secondary texts as one of the first things to read for this class. Yeah, I, I actually do teach a class on monsters every year here at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And that's the first thing I make them read. I agree with that. <laughs> We're in agreement. Okay, so I think we have something for the list of secondary texts. We're going to say... Which apparently we're going to do this time. Or is it, I mean, sure, it's like a critical text, but could it not be like a first day reading thing, which is kind of a primary text because it's so like foundational? I call it a primary text. Okay, so that will be the first thing that I have written down as, I mean, there were five people recommended it, so... I think that or <laughs> I think that counts as um as relevant. I guess four people, whatever. Well, so this this I think gives us a really good place to jump off of because Cohen lays out these these questions that you should ask of a cultural product, and I think that I, I think that he would say that your Dracula is definitely a monster, your Frankenstein creature is definitely a monster, your giants, your Lamia, your uh, uh, alien xenomorphs, but not your Victorian. Um, you know, not the, what's his name, Fagan. He's not a monster. He's just some guy. Just a mustache twirling guy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that he can't be evil or villainous, as John was getting to, uh, I think, expostulate upon. But monsters uh, in Cohen are characterized by their liminality between two states that we normally think of as being impossible to cohabit. Like, for instance, okay. life and death, or natural and artificial, or human and beast, or human and God, you know. So okay. basically, like, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a personification of this and this duality. Yeah, yeah. Existing okay. precariously, right, between those two things. And one of the things that I really like about Cohen's work, and this actually is a throwback to a line from Battlestar Galactica, I know you guys will appreciate this, uh, where Richard Hatch is playing, um, I forget who he's playing, but he's talking to the um, guy who's playing Apollo, uh, who I can only think of his name as being Biceps. That's not right. Um, <laughs> Don't worry about it. And he says, uh, Ambi? Anyway, he says, how can Apollo be the god of healing, but also the god of plague, right? Because Apollo has these arrows, he has a healing arrow and a plague arrow. He says, how can he embody both of those in himself at once? And the answer is because he's a god, right? He's transcendent. Whereas mortal mm-hmm. beings, 
if they inhabit those two positions at the same time, it's unstable and and creates very deleterious effects. And so that's why your vampire, for instance, uh, he's so powerful and he's so amazing, but you get him in contact with something pure like sunlight, and he's going to revert instantly to his natural form, which would be dead body. All right. Well, so I've written that down as a, as a thing we're going to do. Now, here's my question I have. When we did the comics one, we went back and forth a couple times, and we ultimately decided that this was a... 200 level course or 300 level. It doesn't matter, but it was a, it was comics two. And we said, everyone in this class has already taken comics one, which meant that they had read understanding comics, Watchmen. Uh, I think we said fun home. We, we had some, some basic standards. So you're saying this is a foundational text. If we're assigning to that, does this mean that this is your first monster course or is this monsters two? Okay. Can I actually ask a question that might ruin your question? Sure. I probably wouldn't do that. Like, um, so I I don't like whenever I hear like British lit one, British lit two, like I hear it in like a period kind of thing, you know, like beginning until end of the eighteenth century for like British lit one and then like, you know, nineteenth century and onward for British lit two or something. But like, do we want to like organize this by period or by theme or by like like I, I mean like I, I feel like if we have a syllabus with like foundational texts on it uh, like Dracula or like Frankenstein might be there or maybe they might not but if we did monsters too I mean like there's so many monsters that are famous like even someone like it like mm-hmm. you know like I I, I wonder like if there's like an easier way to organize it than by some like kind of abstract yeah. 100 200 level thing which also like differs by university and can sometimes mean difficulty as opposed to uh, this goes along with some questions i had about defining the course which was how far back do we want to go in concerning monsters do we want to go back to ancient myths and talk about those monsters and also uh what can we do to get outside the western canon i'm not going to be good for that because all my training's been in the western canon but how do we expand beyond european american authors and get something like Southeast Asian or Latin American monsters. These are, or do we want to do that? Is that outside the scope oh, these of the are course? Questions, I, think. I think if you're going to go outside the Western Canada, knowledge is a good place to start. So the question, though, does anybody here actually even have a suggestion for books outside the Western canon? Because I really don't have the background, so I won't be suggesting any. Well, since you asked, uh, I'm very fond of a book called The Ashgate Research Companion to Monsters and the Monstrous, edited by Aza Simon Mitman with Peter J. Dendel. And uh, this is a book that comes out of what used to be Ashgate. It's not Ashgate anymore. Rutledge bought them. But um, uh, this has some wonderful essays in it, and uh, they they sort of connect um, uh, contemporary research on monsters into fields that are outside of the Western canon. So there's a wonderful essay called The Monstrous Caribbean by Persephone Braham, and uh, there's a wonderful one called um, about the water deity Mami Wata in Africa, who is really scary. And then uh, there's a Francesca Leone uh, essay about the Islamic visual tradition of monsters. So there's, there's really a lot going on in this book. There's a medieval Japan one. Uh, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of good stuff in that one. And I think there is a monster okay. from outside the Western culture that we are all familiar no. with. Godzilla. Okay. So, those, okay, yeah. so then we have a possibly. So yeah, there's a lot of good we'll figure that out Godzilla. as we go. Um. You want to start like naming yeah. some ideas and then we'll, you know, see if something emerges. That's what we did last time. I mean, do we want to like name themes of some kind, like monsters and capitalism or like, um, you know, like monsters and like empire? I don't, you know, I'm going to go for like the 19th century things. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we can try, but like mine aren't organized that well. Mine are sort of organized around three or four themes that I had in my head when I was picking them, but they're not like conclusively, oh, this is definitely the capitalist one. So I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> a theme might emerge as we decide yeah. on text. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, let's, let's see what we have. I would love to talk to you guys what I do and, and have you react to it if that's helpful. Yeah, cool. Yes. All right. What I what I normally do is I divide the class up by monsters. And this is also following um Cohen, you know, because he says that if you look at how a monster evolves over time and across cultures, uh, you get a pretty good idea of how the anxieties that that monster responds to 
are changing in that culture, right? How discourses about fear and, and social tensions are also changing. So like, for instance, if you were to look at werewolves, then you have a really exciting opportunity to start in, you know, ancient Asia Minor, uh, Iran, um, uh, Rome, what it used to be, Dacia, mm-hmm. you know, and then you can talk about, um, you can talk about, shape, I mean, every culture actually has a shapeshifter, I think. Uh, you know, in Africa, there are werejackals. Uh, in, um, in, in Japanese uh, feudal uh, kabuki plays, you see a lot of tanuki fox maidens. Uh, there are were jaguars, were coyotes in the new world. Um, so you know, so I think it's interesting to sort of talk about how those traditions, um, coalesce and where they can be recognizable to one each other and where they differ, you know, and that gives you an opportunity mm-hmm. to talk about how changing forces in society, which include notions mm-hmm. of economy and class and politics and identity, like race and gender and sexuality and uh, other kinds of political identities can change over time. I also organized I saw this company. Um, so first we did monstrous Asians. We're moving on to monstrous sexualities and then we're going to finish with monstrous mothers, monstrous mothers. And my list was organized. I have I have section where I'm dealing with you know sort of classic hero's journey type text. And then I have a section where I'm dealing with othering by gender and then othering by race and then sort of an other section for the other meaning of the word other. So I went and I went in a completely different direction. So yeah, I, okay. I organized my thoughts chronologically. And mine really follow a pattern of monster hunting because that's my thing. And it's going to be much more contemporary. And I have not taught this yet, but I selfishly suggesting monsters and capitalism have an idea about like doing like into the 19th century with like Dracula and the time machine, which by the way, the Morlocks are the only monsters that have ever scared me and then moving forward and ending with us. And by and, and by us, I mean the Jordan Peele movie. Well, who else had movies? Cause I have movies on mine too. I have movies. I have some movies. I have, okay. I have some uh, comic books and some audio fiction. Okay. You gotta have movies. So we're definitely not limiting to just text-based literature. But I do want to say that I think that an area that is highly neglected uh, in in the study of monsters is theater. Um, And uh, of course, because that's my thing. Right, right. <laughs> okay, well, Mike, pick the first one. What what would your first pick be if you had to have one? And I'm, and we can just cross things off the list until we come down, you know. All right, here's my number one. Prometheus Bound, which is a play by Aeschylus, right? Which has a variety of different monsters in it. Mm-hmm. I'm actually most interested, because it's got a bunch of demons that come and get you, but I'm actually most interested in Prometheus himself as a monster, uh, as a transgressive subject who, who disobeys Zeus, right? And the reason why I think this is so important is because Mary Shelley subtitles her, uh, her, her novel Frankenstein, The Modern mm-hmm. Prometheus, and it's, it's, it's this play that she's referring to. That is the, um, that's the Prometheus that she's talking about. So what I want to look for is correspondences there. And then Frankenstein, of course, has this huge imprint on the 19th, 20th, and 21st century that you know has not gone away. If you look at not just manifestations of Frankenstein, but the way that, that we retell the stories of the golem starting in the 19th century, uh, robots, artificial intelligence, monsters like mm-hmm. uh, um, Agent Smith in the, in the Matrix or Ultron, you know, or Darth Vader. You know, these are all Frankenstein stories that I think have their origin in Prometheus. So that's that's my first one. Well, I wrote down both Prometheus Bound and Frankenstein just because I have, I have a theory here. Um, who else picked Frankenstein? Oh, yeah. I, did. I did. I mean, you had to at least consider it, I think. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that one's going to end up there. Did anybody else have Prometheus Bound? Uh, I didn't, but I had some other ancient myths uh, oh, okay. just so. uh, toss around, try and find something that might work for an ancient myth. And Prometheus Bound would be an excellent one for that. Well, John, what's, what's another one that you had? Oh, I, do, I was just tossing around ideas of uh, the story of Medusa or the Minotaur in the Labyrinth. Possibly Medea, if you wanted to go with the sexuality and monstrosity. Uh, Beowulf uh, comes to mind. Uh, Brendel and his mother. Mm-hmm. I also had Beowulf. I, I don't have any, I will admit, ancient. I, I really do start with the late 19th century, move forward. So I don't want to jump us ahead too far. <laughs> we'll come back to that. You'll go first when we get there. Anna, you, any, any ancients? Uh, no, I can skip to the 18th century if you want. <laughs> well, okay. So you, you and Heather are going to go re- first in the next round. Anybody else have any ancient stuff that we want to definitely put on the maybe? I don't. It's not ancient, but it is definitely older. Um, and it 
popped into my head while we were discussing this Paradise Lost oh, and Satan. That. Paradise. Yeah. The devil. Ooh. Um, you know, to that, John, I wanted to say that um, there's a play by, uh, I can't remember who it's by, but it's called Hippolytus, mm-hmm. and it has a kraken in it. This is from ancient Greece, right? And the Kraken, of course, is a kaiju. Uh, we would now call it kaiju. Um, and H.P. Hmm. Lovecraft uh, uh, said about his own work wow. in the 1920s that he was thinking about uh, the Kraken and other giant sea monsters like Scylla and Charybdis from, uh, from Greek myth. So when he's, he's looking for a way to talk about some very modern anxieties, like, for instance, about uh, I think the, the two things that he was most concerned about was um, atomic energy and what that would mean for the world and also yeah. race mixing contamination. Yeah. Well, since you just mentioned it, my next one after Beowulf was The Odyssey by Homer, which is specifically still in Cryptus. So. Yeah, full of sea monsters. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And I would again, I would say just like you, I'd say that they're kaiju. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's you know, while, we're, while we're on the subject of kaiju, we should and the ancient world, we should really talk about even the far more ancient Babylonian myth, the Enuma Elish, in which Marduk faces off against Tiamat, who's a chaos dragon, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and he eventually kills her, and I believe he makes the universe that we live in out of her body and blood, right? And the Tiamat as a dragon. Um, I think we can trace her not only through um, Leviathan and biblical monsters that, that permeate the West and then also, you know, the dragons that populate King Arthur and, and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. And then finally up to Tiamat as she reappears as a Dungeons and Dragons villain. But also in the East, I think that I think that we can trace the dragons of the East also back to some of those early Babylonian myths. Uh, that I'm not sh- no one's exactly sure about that. I think, but I I see some similarities there. You know? well, if you trace how the cultures expanded and some of the technology moved through east and west, and the stories would have been carried with them, you could probably find something. Yeah, we we tend to think of the way that we teach history and the way that we learn history. We tend to think of the west and the east as as not having been connected in the ancient world, but of yeah. course the Silk Road did connect them, and they they had a lot of correspondence. I want to do a little bit of a jump since they both out of the last round. I'll start with Heather. You said you want to fast forward a little bit. Where where were you at in the you said the 18th century, 19th? Well, uh, I could. I really my first choice is actually 1979, 80. So do I jump out of like the next two rounds? Um, it's really no, no, no. I mean, you don't have to go in order. Okay, okay. So I think that. Um, Either, and I'm going to throw two out here because I think either could work, either Stephen King's Carrie or Stephen King's The Shining, both of which deal with this idea of what drives someone to monstrosity um, and then what happens when they get pushed over the edge. I'm fascinated by the way the psychological change happens for both Jack Torrance in The Shining and Carrie in Carrie that makes them that snap that's certainly not instantaneous snap to monstrosity, but um, is sort of the end progression of a whole lot of personal demons and um, outside influences. And so this idea of pushing someone to the edge and then letting them teeter. um, And in the case of both of those novels, something pushes them over. I find that kind of psychological shift from what we would consider humane, and I'm using air quotes (laughs) that you can't see there, um, to monstrosity, I think is done very well in both of those. I literally have Carrie or Shining as my next choice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, to take what Heather said and to jump back to the 18th century. Okay. I was going to recommend a gothic novel called The Monk. Um, oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, which so is all about, which, yeah, as you can tell, uh, <laughs> one is a page turner. <laughs> it truly is. And it's and for an 18th century novel, it's rather short. So, like, you can actually teach it, unlike something like Clarissa, um, which is the large, longest book in the English language, uh, for those of you who do not know uh, and can be used as a doorstop. Um <laughs> But anyway, the monk the monk is about how like someone can be pushed to the edge, even someone who's like so super religious. And also the coolest character in 18th century fiction, I think, is in the monk. Um, there's a character named Tilda who like dresses up as a dude um, and like 
loves the monk um, and seduces him and also might actually be a demon and also the devil's in it. So like it can feed into some of our devil narratives and temptation, which is also like a thing, even if the devil's not there. Anyway, the monk for your consideration. We're talking about driving people to monstrosity. Jekyll and Hyde automatically comes to mind. He doesn't have this text rather than a drug addiction. I have that on my list as well. Yeah, I think mine are going to be way more obvious for the most part. So I'm just going to I'm just crossing things off as you guys say them because everybody's going to be better at this than I am. <laughs> um, I, I would also say that Jekyll and Hyde is extremely short and extremely teachable. Uh, if we mm-hmm. were to actually like consider like building a class that people could actually get through the reading. Right. And that's one of the reasons that I, I've taught Carrie in the past, both in just an American lit survey, uh, as well as other venues. Mm. And it's something that students have told me, Relative even the ones us. that tend not to be drawn to reading novels. They're like, I read this over the weekend. That's cool. And also to clarify, uh, when you say teach Carrie or The Shining, you're, you're talking about the novel and not the film, right? Yes. Now, I could put an argue in. Uh, I did. I really have done a lot of work with the adaptations of The Shining. So there could be some value in pulling some of the pieces in uh, to show how the two actors and the two directors created that. But I don't think they'd have to watch either the movie or the miniseries in its extent. So oddly enough, I have Carrie under both books and movies as, as a possibility. Um, 70, the 1976 mm-hmm. carry, of course. <laughs> and then I only put Shining under books because mm-hmm. I didn't feel like the movie worked as well for this. I mean, I could, I could see the argument that it does, but even though there, it, there is a supernatural element to it, it just it felt a little, you know, Mike's thing earlier about we're talking about monsters, not just villains. And I felt like Shining fell off a little right. bit there, though so I did still count it. Yeah. It does. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the novel's definitely more about the supernatural. It's, it plays that up. And, and the miniseries, to some extent, like I said, if I were, if I were teaching, um, I might bring some of those clips into the classroom as I was able and made sense, but not as homework. Mav, I want to ask you and Hannah a culture question. Uh, I can divert your second, because we're talking about um, The Shining and also, I, I'm just wondering, why is it that Jack Nicholson winds up playing so many characters named Jack? Lack of imagination. <laughs> you don't have an opinion you, you also on ask, anything that has to do with The Shining. You can also ask why so many characters named Bob. <laughs> Lack of imagination. <laughs> In both cases. Yeah, but I mean... Like, wasn't Jack Napier one of yes. the original yeah, Jack, names of Jack the Nicholson, and he's, and he's Jack in a couple other films as well. It is it is a thing that he does. Yeah, yeah. and then or Jake. Yeah, he plays he Jake in both in Jake. both um, Chinatown and the two Jakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Lack of imagination. <laughs> All right, we could probably just cut out that yeah. whole section. Stays. All right, moving on. <laughs> Aside, tap it on the show. Kip, we we have to at least talk about Dracula. I I don't want to be that boring person who's like it's canon, but it like I'm not saying we have to put it on, but it works so well for so many things we've Why talked about. Why wouldn't we talk about Dracula? I always talk There's about the that. idea. I I don't know. I I just I was ready, and like 30 minutes in, we haven't done it yet, really. Um, but it works so well for like you know hybridity and. Like the idea of like a foreign other like coming in and like upsetting the balance or it can work for uh, like information being distributed in new ways or it can work for like disease and crowd thinking, which like the crowd was kind of theorized as like a monstrosity in the 19th century, particularly at the end. Or, you know, like it could be seen like Dracula himself could be seen as like in some ways like being read as like capital. Um like there's like there's so many things there and also if you teach dracula you can teach the icelandic version stoker no no guys this is amazing no i I didn't know this it is amazing (laughs) yeah so like my yeah my boyfriend bought this for my birthday um yeah like stoker like and like his icelandic translator like basically kind of like wrote a new version of dracula and it's so much more fun than the original there's like a secret like crypt like ritual going down at the bottom of Dracula's castle with like monstrous hordes. It's amazing. You should read it. It's actually fairly there, short. Is there, I forget if it's a vampiric gorilla or just a giant gorilla shows up. Is that correct? I don't remember this. <laughs> I remember hairy people. Okay. Maybe it was hairy people. And someone, uh, when I, I haven't read the translation. I was reading some articles and maybe someone mistook that alongside Dracula. I'd like to propose Carmilla by Sheridan Lafanu. Yes. 
which is the mm-hmm. uh, well, basically the lesbian vampire of the 19th century. And if I can have, have a girl with hungry eyes by uh, Fritz Lieber, uh, it's about American consumers of the 1950s, and he's an active vampire. Do you guys know that, um, speaking of Game of Thrones... Oh, no. <laughs> we weren't going to bring this up. George R.R. Martin wrote a book that has nothing to do with Game of Thrones called Fever Dreams. It's a novel, F-E-V-R-E, Dreams, uh, having to do with the Fever River. And it's the story of a 19th century um, steamboat captain who winds up getting caught up in a vampire mess. And it, it's a, I thought it was actually a very sophisticated way of talking about vampirism as a metaphor for slavery in the, uh, in the antebellum South. You know, I liked it a lot. I mean, it really showcases that uh, George R. R. Martin is far more interested in relationships between the main character and food than he is between the main character and women. Well, since you're talking about a book that compares um, monstrosity to slavery, then I'm going to go next because um, one of the ones on my list is Beloved, Toni Morrison. Probably should throw Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter in there as well. I, did, I didn't. I thought of it, but I didn't put it. I didn't put it down. Mm. So there's a wonderful book about the about theory uh, by Nina Auerbach called "Our Vampires Ourselves." Yes. So good. Also, Simon Bacon, the becoming vampire, vampire difference in popular culture. Yes. That's a good one, too. Yeah. If, if we're going to talk, and I will say this this sort of, I'm, I'm hemming and hawing whether to put it on my list or not, but if, if we were we mentioned Dracula and are we going to talk about that, and we did, um, we also have uh, the Anne Rice series. So I don't know if any of those should go on. Uh, Interview with the Vampire is certainly um, the good one. something I've worked with <laughs> in the past, but, you know... <laughs> I don't want to be hard on, on Ms. Rice, but I find to be the most readable of all of them. <laughs> but I also haven't explored very far into her her domain. So, um, but I, I don't know. And again, the question is how much, I guess one of the questions I have when I build syllabi is how much do I want students to feel like they're on firm foundation and maybe some things they've encountered in the past, but maybe I always like to choose things that they've maybe encountered through film um, and then take them back to the, the source text. Or are we totally saying we're going to just give you a bunch of stuff you've probably not encountered at all? I like to mix, but that's just me. Yeah, I think uh, a mix of something they, they might be familiar with and trying it a new way, but as also introducing them to some new stuff that they haven't encountered before. And you know, if you want an easier way to teach people with a vampire, there's a graphic novel called Claudia's Story, but they exit all the stuff with that movie and they tell Claudia's story from her point of view. It's really a beautiful book artistically. So, as we're talking about vampires, my last vampire stuff was all non-book and, and movie stuff, but I had some random episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I hadn't figured out which one yet. Some random episode of True Blood, hadn't figured out which one yet. And then my last one was the 70s version of Blackula, um, and maybe also Screen, Blackula Screen, but definitely Blackula by, by William Crane, the director. So, um, that one I feel strongly on. I would make a recommendation if you want to go for fun, the I'm episode where it. Buffy meets Dracula, because that would be a great way to show students that you can have fun with monsters too. <laughs> well, if we're, if we're talking about the fun, we're starting to get into the parody pastiche, which is an important part of genre that, uh, you, uh, cliches become so familiar. One way to freshen them up is just make fun of them. And so you have things like, uh, what we do in the shadows, or Young Frankenstein could also be on there. But I want to also recommend something from another angle, because when looking at monsters, part of what we could talk about is how we view them in a text versus how we view them in a film where we actually see the monster and how that creates different effects. But I also want to consider how uh, just hearing a monster in an audio format might affect things. And so I'm going to recommend a segment from the Thrilling Adventure Hour podcast called Beyond Belief. Uh, I love Beyond Belief. Yeah, it is. Well, Thrilling Adventure Hour is fantastic. Beyond Belief uh, is perfect for this. It's uh, about two drunk socialites uh, who get involved with monsters constantly. Yeah, it, that's a wonderful parody and, and the way that they recondition monsters in that show there, is terrific. There are a few episodes where they do it really well, where it's actually does get a little scary for a few minutes and then they uh, cut it with the humor, Uh, especially for some of their uh, parodies of it, where they have the demon, demon clown show up. And then one of the characters, Sadie Doyle actually finds clowns funny. Right. She finds clowns funny. So yeah, can't hear it. I mean, speaking of it, did anybody else have that as the novel? No, it's too long. Yeah. It is too long. Yeah. That's why I was like a maybe on it, but it is long. 
I would definitely teach the first part of the new movie um, because mm -hmm. I, I do find that particular version of it interesting in that the director tried to go for like fear isn't like being afraid of like werewolves that have no meaning behind them, but like kind of embodying this idea of like the monster taking like certain anxieties about society or like your personal self formation mm -hmm. and using that to frighten you. Which, you know, you can argue whether or not he does that well, especially in part two. Yeah, he really doesn't but, follow through, you know. You've got to kill somebody or nobody's going to be a scared of you, you know, as a monster, I'm just saying. If we're talking about TV and movies, mm -hmm. I wanted to recommend Penny Dreadful. Mm -hmm. uh, it might I'll back that up, yeah. It's so, so good. good. Yeah, agreed. And it, and it like, also, by the way, perfect reinterpretation of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. one of the most faithful uh, adaptations of Frankenstein to the novel that, that I think exists anywhere, you know? You know, I want to respond to something that John said earlier mm -hmm. about parody um, and how eventually, you know, you got to keep it fresh. One of the things that I discovered uh, in my research on Frankenstein is that the first play version of Frankenstein came out in 1823. Yeah. It was a bootleg, uh, you know, un unapproved uh, play version of Mary Kelly's novel. Had very little. As most, as most adaptations of the 19th century were. Yeah, there were no copyright laws, so they could do whatever they wanted. And that it came out in 1823. And by the end of the year, or within a couple of years, <laughs> there were already like a half a dozen parodies in the London stage, including Frankenstitch, which was about a, a tailor who put together a, a, um, a monster, and Frankenstein, which I think was about a laundry, you know? So, um, so I mean, like, these, these were already old jokes within five years of the novel being published, you know? If we're going to, I don't want to jump, but I'm, I'm going to use this pause to jump. If we're talking about television, I think the first season, those first six or so episodes of the walking dead are pretty, pretty solid zombie, um, human. What do you do when you wake up in this world? Um, I think it's, it's good uh, television. We making. Also throw in stranger things for a central television show. And, and, and if we're going to talk about zombies, I um, I have the um, the original 1968 Night of the Living Dead because I live in Pittsburgh and it's required viewing to, to move to this city. <laughs> but also, it's good. <laughs> yeah, these are great. Uh, well, if we're going to talk about zombies, I would like to recommend Colton Whitehead's novel Zone One uh, because, uh, well, one, I think it's a page turner, and two, I think it like takes you know a, a time when like zombies have been in some people's opinions like overdone and like reimagines it to like say something about our contemporary era um in really interesting ways and it's pretty short i think the best zombie novel that i've ever read is the girl with all the gifts by mike carey which was made into a film starring glenn close uh and if you haven't read it it's astonishing it is it is so it's such a powerful meditation on uh, modern culture and disease. And uh, the, the the premise is that zombies are people who are infected by OCD cordeps. Uh, I didn't say that right. But um, the fungus that, that gets into beetles and, and ants and stuff and makes them behave weirdly, like that fungus adapts to humanity and just right, wipes us all out. Nicole, do you have any zombie texts? Uh, the only one I can think of is uh, White Zombie. It's a very old movie and uh, problematic in a lot of ways, but it is sort of an interesting um, exposed out capitalism and the way slave labor is used. Oh, yeah. Isn't that where the term zombie comes from? Yeah. It's more of a Haitian zombie text. I think I think zombies an older older term than that, but that's the first time it emerges in pop culture. Yeah, I'm sure. yeah maybe it's the first time where it's the the shambling walking. They're not dead, but that style of zombie shows up. Um, what do you have? And ironically, Bella Lugosi plays a Haitian yes. witch doctor. <laughs> well, along with all this talk of zombies, this might be a place where you could introduce another medium and talk about video games and monsters. There are a bunch, but I mean, that was just a topic. I don't have, have a specific video games. Um, it's just uh, that would be another mm -hmm. way to approach the topic. All of Dungeons and Dragons, or just games in general. There's yeah, game. Wow. You know, you could do board games. There's the yeah. oh, what pandemic? But there's a Call of Cthulhu version. Oh yeah, I saw that. There, there's a like an entire like gothic novel, um, like role play, yeah. like Dungeons and Dragons. Um, <laughs> Uh, like, and it's called um, 
what is it called? <laughs> I own this and I forgot. Oh, Ghastly Affair. Uh, so like you, you can, you know, play a monstrous person and like you have like depravity. Um, yeah. Actually, so anyway, you're really into the 18th century. Class to, after studying some of these texts to then say, all right, well, now you get to role play it. Oh, well, you've just hit upon my yeah. end of class teaching habit. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I, I did not play the video game myself, but I do enjoy the um, adaptation of Castlevania, and I know that's based on a um, video game. So you could do several, both the video, game. video games. Yeah, you could do both that and the um, more recent uh, show. There, there's a board game based on Dracula called Dracula and the Fury of Dracula. Um, there's also uh, the betrayal at the House on the Hill, where like it's a game that changes every time you play it and someone is a traitor and they do things like plant voodoo dolls to try and kill you <laughs> and all their other friends <laughs> and work against them um so depending on what you wanted to demonstrate using games like i think they could be a good way to interact with texts and ideas um i want to move on before we before we get voting i want to just get some of the and other stuff that, i mean we've hit major things but does anybody have any things that they want to run through that are like sort of areas that we didn't hit like i definitely have some comics but i also have a couple of weird things that i want to do so but i, I don't want to go first you know i want to i want to i'd like to take a minute and plug uh jennifer haley's play this is the only play that i know of the only actual stage play that i know of has zombies in it that's any good okay uh and that is neighborhood three requisition of doom and this is an amazing play by jennifer haley and it um the gimmick of it is that there's a video game that all the kids in the suburban you know development are playing and the game is a zombie killer game and it maps the game of the world onto your actual street using gps data and so, of course, naturally what happens is that the, the boundary between the game world and the real world becomes murky and the kids are running through killing zombies and they're actually, you know, sort of vicariously killing their parents, but then they sort of start really killing their parents and it's freaking awesome. You have children, you know. <laughs> just, just point it out. I was going to pick up myself, yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so just to pick some things that are just sort of weird that I don't expect anybody else to have. Um, I had short story collection, the bloody chamber and other stories by Angela Carter. Oh, mm -hmm. I know. Too. Yeah. That's I do text. know that text. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. Um, I also have, um, oh, and, and I've recommended this before. This is the only thing that's in common from my, my list that was on, um, comics and we ended up not picking it then. So I'm pitching it again. I kill giants by Joe Kelly. Oh, by the way, I wanted to tell your listeners, Mav, if they're not all actually on the show right now, that Angela Carter, of course, is the author of the stories that would eventually become immortalized as uh, the com A Company of Wolves, uh, which is a 1980s film that's absolutely mm -hmm. ages just beautifully, I think, and it's just really Angela Lansbury, you know, in, in, in one of her few non- Roles. The Company of Wolves is one is in that particular book that I recommend. In fact, you know it's funny that that is exactly the film that that took me to the text that Mav just recommended. Because I'm like, who is this person, and why did she write this? And I need to know more about her. And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I have something I I doubt anybody else has read. Man Eaters by Chelsea Kane. And I should have brought this up earlier when you were talking about were werewolves. Maneaters is, a, she's on, I think, the third graphic novel collection, but it's an ongoing comic book series. I would recommend the very first volume. And Chelsea Kane is a author, and she writes the story of a 12-year-old girl who, when she has her first period, finds out that the secret that nobody ever talks about, which is that during their periods, all teenage girls turn into werepanthers and then roam the land. <laughs> and it is this weird feminist metaphor for menstruation um, myths and being okay and the demonization of, of, of teenage girls and puberty. And it is brilliant. Well, alongside that, you could use the film The Cat People. Yeah. So those yeah. two texts could go well together. You know, I also want to add to that uh, a novel that I think not enough people know about, which is called Mongrels uh, by Stephen Graham Jones. And uh, it was published in 2015, and it, sure. it uses werewolfism as a metaphor for poverty and uh, immigration status. 
And it's a, it is it is scary and and compelling and awesome. Probably my weirdest thing that I have on the list, but I think is the absolute most important text for this entire class, and it's very easy to read. The monster at the end of this book, starring lovable furry old Grover by Joe Stone. <laughs> I love that book. That is a wonderful book. I'm gonna say that's one of the it scariest is. monster is. novels I've ever read. <laughs> it's a short story um, for those who have not, haven't heard of it this is a children's book about Grover from Sesame Street and on the first page Grover warns you to not move to the end of the book because the title of the book is the monster at the end of this book and there's a monster there so stop reading the book because you don't want to encounter the monster who is going to terrify you and then it's a it's a fourth wall breaking book where Grover does everything he can to stop you, anyway, the reader, from turning the page for it's only like twenty pages long. Children's book. But you turn him anyway because you're a horrible person. Yeah. And get, right. And then you get to the end of the book. And it turns out, no, it's Grover, but it's also you. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> well, that's that's why I like it. It, it is it is a weird postmodern text. For four-year-olds, which 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 kind of teach you teaches you mm-hmm. about acceptance and about it's okay to be a monster and feel monstrous inside. So I am all for this book. I think it's brilliant. Okay, well, if we're doing that, then I want to throw my two weird things into the ring, and I want to put out *Funicula*, which is the greatest text ever written it's about vampires. It's one of my favorite books. It's about a vampire bunny. Uh, it's what I read when I was not allowed to read Goosebumps until I started thinking Goosebumps, which we could also put on the list because <laughs> there was some great Goosebumps. Um, and then Where the Wild Things Are. Oh, yeah. But also, I really actually, I'm one of the two people in the world. I need to share an anecdote about Goosebumps. Uh, I need to share an anecdote about Goosebumps. All right. Real quick. I took my niece to go see it, and she was seven or so. She was very interested in seeing the movie. Um, she had never read any of the books. So we uh, go there, and you know, it, it is goofy kids fun, but when the monsters start showing up, she would cover her eyes, and I'd ask her why, and she'd say, well, there's, there's a monster coming. And then, uh, a little spoiler here, but the big reveal of who the big bad monster is and it's the ventriloquist dummy. And she leans over to me and says, why is that scary? <laughs> <laughs> you know the, the bit that uh, Patton Oswalt does about his daughter? Oh, the, uh, uh, accidentally she, seeing the, yeah, she accidentally the werewolf. The, yeah, Benicio Del Toro as the wolfman. <laughs> uh, and it's a really scary movie, right? And he immediately like turns it off. He's like, oh, no, no. And he puts on uh, some cartoon. And the cartoon... Uh, has a funny thing in it where um, somebody's bones jump out of their body and then they do a little dance together, you know? And she freaks out. She just freaks the fuck out. And he just eventually calms her down and gets her into bed. And um, and, he sa- and then she says, Hey, Daddy, remember that other TV show? And he says, Yes, honey. He says, That doggy was wearing a shirt. <laughs> <It> just giggles. <laughs> so on this level... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, this reminds me, I, I recently rewatched The Dark Crystal because I'm gearing up to watch the, the show. And and this was a beloved movie of my childhood. And I'm watching it. And the whole time I'm appalled. I'm like, I can't believe my parents let me watch this. This is truly terrifying. Yeah. There are moments in here. And yet my childhood self, I don't ever remember being scared at this movie. And so it was just this funny sort of, you know, experience where I'm thinking, wow, why did this not why did I not see the darkness as a child or did I just not process it? But yeah. I remember being scared of it as a child. There was definitely some moments that stuck in my mind. The X-Men's are scary. Yeah. I started the new series, the Netflix series, and um, it's not without flaws, but the Dixies are amazing. And Aquafina is one of them. Also, we, we need to, if we're talking about children's things and things that are messed up, why are we not talking about where the wild things are and also the 2009 movie, which I'm one of two people who likes it, but there it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't love it, but I don't hate it. I think it's, I think it got an unfair shake. You know, you have to take liberties in order to make a book that short into a two hour movie. I, I found it terrifying. I found it absolutely terrifying. I guess because I identified too strongly with Max in it. I'm not going to try and break that down. <laughs> Um, if I could add something to that, um, okay. <laughs> a novel by Toby Barlow, um, 
that was called Sharp Teeth. It's written entirely in free verse, mm-hmm. first point of view about people who turn into werewolves, and it usually is connected to poverty and other things such as that. He's not a monster. I, I was going to say. I know. Uh, and along with that, you have the witches, right? Yeah, because yeah, the witches are truly like different creatures in the doll book. I mean, there's just like a whole narrative of villainous women. Well, I only have one more book that I, from my list. Uh, I, does anybody have any other, any last ones? Because I have one more one that I know no one's heard of that like, I like, so I'm going to pick. Um, you might have heard of it, John. Um, my last one was What Savage Beast by Peter David. Oh, the Incredible Hulk book? Yes, it is a novel by Peter David who wrote the Incredible Hulk comic before Lime. And it is, it is a novel, like an actual text novel. Yeah. Yeah, I've read it several times. It's basically the story of Bruce Banner and what it means, it's sort of not like Jekyll and Hyde, but what it means to cohabitate the body of essentially your Hyde and trying to come to terms with it. It's really good. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one, uh, definitely one of the better novels coming out of that 90s period for Marvel, where they seem to go through phases of putting out novels. Yeah, just a, a couple of texts that we might not have gone to. A, We've mentioned H.P. Lovecraft, but we haven't talked about what we might use from him. If we're talking about monsters, it should probably be something like Call of Cthulhu or Shadows Over Innsmouth uh, that really deal with the monster aspect. Um, Invasion of the Body Snancers is a really interesting one for 1950s. Uh, Comic books, you, of course, have Hellboy. Uh, And then one that uh, some of you might not be familiar with, The Great God Pan by Arthur Macon. I don't know that one. That one's a new one to me. Okay, so we have a lot of stuff. How do we narrow it down? I feel like that if I can make a recommendation, um, it seems like we hop, skip, and jump through, what, about half a dozen different time periods. Mm -hmm. And then we've got about half a dozen or so that we could then maybe do half a dozen visual texts. And that might Mm -hmm. be a way to to kind of get breadth, if not depth, for this class. I like that. We could also like pick a theme, like, you know, when Heather talked about uh, The Shining or Carrie and how that embodied a certain kind of like how one becomes a monster. That seemed to be a common theme throughout some of the texts. I know that there are other themes like Empire that we talked about as well. Or we could organize it around types of monsters. Vampire, werewolf type. The problem I have with types of monsters is that we've got so many types. Like, I, I, you know, I don't know if we have. We could do that in just one class. Well, we could uh, follow Stephen King's model, where he says there are only three types: the vampire, the werewolf, and the thing with no name. Yeah, I mean, I think such, such distinctions are only useful if they help us to focus our inquiry, right? If they are, if they eliminate too much, then they're not useful, right? So it's. it's if we want to include serial killers and monsters, you know, Cohen doesn't, but there's no reason why we, why we can't do that. You know, it depends on what kind of questions we're asking. Well, so the, the book that I think most people had on their list was Frankenstein. Do we absolutely want Frankenstein? I absolutely Frankenstein. Okay. I think okay. we need some classics in there. I'm good with that. Frankenstein is yeah. important. You know, it's so many stories of Frankenstein have been adapted. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if we had, so if we were going to use Frankenstein, what themes could we you know, could we could we make becoming the monster theme off of that? We could. I mean, Frankenstein is really okay. the monster, and then the monster is the whole journey is about how he begins mm-hmm. to see himself as the monster, right? Well, partially, sure. Well, I mean, I think that uh, Frankenstein is a creator, right? Mm-hmm. So that that is a whole yeah. um, level where you can really dig into it. The, the creator, and of course, the romantic ideas about the responsibility of the creator to the created. And the powerful to the less powerful and so on. Well, if we were going to go there, I would argue, and I've not read it, but I've heard of it. So if we were going to do, do that, I would argue for uh, Chambers, you have Prometheus Bound as, as sort of intro text to Frankenstein. So I would vote for that. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. I'm good with yeah, that. I like yeah. that bridge. That makes and sense. Especially when we can put these texts in dialogue with each other. That should promote good conversation right. in class. All right. The next things that were mentioned were Medusa, Medea, and Minotaur, all ancient yeah. plays, but I don't know if they work anymore if we were going to go in that direction. I, I don't think they do. No, if we're, okay. we probably should limit to like one from the ancient period, maybe one from the medieval period, and get to Frankenstein pretty quick. And we could skip over the medieval even. I, I think that we could, if we wanted to, we could include the monk um, as a in between like 18th okay. century uh, text. I'm in favor of the monk any way we you can get him. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that's a good addition. Um, also, if we're going to talk about Frankenstein, maybe read certain of Satan's speeches. Maybe not all of Paradise Lost, but some of Satan's essential speeches. Some selections from Paradise Lost. Well, that's one of the texts mm-hmm. that uh, the monster reads when he's learning how we're learning mm-hmm. language. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And that, of course, ties back into the idea of the devil, which is in the monk. So Paradise Lost can be a bridge from Prometheus to the monk. Yeah, that's a great idea. I like that a lot. So, so Frankenstein. So we're if our we have four texts then, and then we're at Frankenstein. What is like the next thing? So that takes us up to Harry and Shining. Heather, those are yours. I, I would actually because I'm going to go with with um, length here. I'm going to recommend Carrie. Also, um, a I mean the novel's totally a female monster being just tortured by a bunch of female monsters, um, and you know a couple of men, but predominantly. It's it's very female centered text, and that might be a nice uh, addition to the to the syllabus. Um, I'd link that to some of the earlier works like Frankenstein, The Great God Pan by Arthur Meekin. Actually, is about the uh, the scientist doing an experiment on a woman, and uh, she says she can see Pan, and she ends up becoming this seductress and driving all the men wild. And so that could kind of bridge from Frankenstein to Carrie, if especially if you're looking chronologically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like, what, 1894? Uh, yeah, it's, it's the late 1800s. Do we, do we want anything else? Because, like, Frankenstein is, like, at the very beginning of the 19th century, and then we have <laughs> the Greek god Pan at the end. Is there anything, like, else from the 19th century that we wanted? Do we want to kick off Dracula in the... Because I think this... I think, I think Dracula could still work, because it works for everything, but we yeah. don't have to keep it on there. I, I think my... I was going to say my one hesitation with Dracula and and I've taught Dracula and I've certainly loved the text myself. I find that undergrads um, have found it difficult to read just, I think because of the length, um, you know, so maybe, maybe parts of it or I I like the whole thing. So I'm kind of torn. It's like, I don't know. Like, it's funny because I teach Victorian novel and they're all like, yeah, Dracula, the short one. Um, but uh, Powers of Darkness, if we wanted to like take a different route, um, is shorter than Dracula. I think it's pretty much about half the size. That This is the Icelandic version of Dracula to clarify that Bram Stoker did work on. And it also emphasizes like the female vampires mm-hmm. um, in really interesting ways that you do not get in the original Dracula. It's a great idea. The most interesting vampires in Dracula are the women. Okay. Well, that sounds like it'd be a nice bridge text too. So are we scratching um, Jekyll and Hyde because that's um, the next step? If we have to reduce for, reduce for the number of, for, just for the number of texts, that would be one I would drop. Okay. Uh, Girl with Hungry Eyes. That was Nicole's. Strong case for enough. It's a short story, but it's also not very well okay. known. So, but it does talk about consumerism, but I don't know if it talks about making of the monster as much. So if the listeners are wondering, uh, Mike had to leave, Mike Timmers had to leave. Next one on the list was Fever Dreams, which is by George R. R. Martin. I'm going to say no just because it's super long, like everything you wrote. Um, and the next one was mine, which was Beloved. My strong case for it right now is that I will always recommend anything Toni Morrison. <laughs> um, also, I believe she'd be the first author of color that we have. So that, that's a reason. But it's also a different look at the monster. So it's not quite along the same vein as like the Frankenstein thing. But it does, I would argue, fit with sort of an othering thing with, that we did with like Carrie and everything. Yeah, I'm a big believer in uh, including Beloved in this. Uh, Abe Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. Uh, it was mine, and but I say no. <laughs> Um, I don't think any review of the vampire works anymore either, even though I love that. It's, I love. it's the only one of her books that I do love, actually. Um, Buffy versus Dracula, maybe. I mean, there there are so many episodes about yeah. Buffy that would work with this. And I mean, I I think that Heather's research mm-hmm. in particular really yeah. speaks Buffy, to mm-hmm. Yeah, I do want to give another push for Beyond Belief for something in the audio format. I don't know it, but you guys spoke well of it. And it's the only thing that we have like that. Yeah. And- I think an audio text is good. Give him a little humor, give him something fun to liven up the class. Well, if if you want humor, I think mm-hmm. that us actually does work well with the theme of the class about like becoming monsters. Um, and also like, I think that comedy and horror like really do work well together. And Jordan Peele has been one of those directors who's shown us that in recent times. Right. Um, I don't think we need it. Chapter one anymore. Unless somebody else has a strong case for it. Um, Penny Dreadful is going to have the Buffy problem. There's a lot of stuff in it, but like, you know, you could, you could certainly find some of something in there. I was going to say one of the nice things about Penny Dreadful is we haven't really had a monster mashup yet. Um, So Penny Dreadful's going to hit them all. Um, Probably that are talked about in a syllabus like this. So it might be a nice culminating text. And did I miss another zombie text? It might be the only zombie representative we have. And I think that zombies should be represented. Walking Dead. 
I'd like to switch for Natalie Dead. It's a canonical zombie text the way we think of zombies now. Well, uh, Zone 1 is another zombie text, and I would push for that because I think that Colson Whitehead is like a really interesting contemporary author, and um, I do not want to spoil the book, but, you know, uh, I think it does find interesting ways to fit with the theme of the class that maybe other texts haven't explored in quite that same way. All right, so um, the white zombies, anybody want to fight for that? That was another zombie text. That sounds like it. I mean, it was my suggestion, but it's older and might be harder to watch, so. I don't know Zone 1, but Hannah felt very strongly on that, and we already have Night of the Living Dead, too, so. Call it I'm not going to include the games, even though I think there should be some. I think that's a good way to teach, but, like, just in order to keep the list manageable. Well, we don't have a, a game to pick. I would just keep that as a topic. Yeah. But that would also depend on each teacher's familiarity with what games yeah. are out there. And I, I think it also depends on, like, the theme of the class, too, mm-hmm. because, like, ghastly hair would be great mm-hmm. for an 18th century <laughs> class on the Gothic, but we're, you know, just reading the monks, so it might not be, like, the best thing to do now. Yeah. The next thing I have is I Kill Giants was mine, but I don't think it fits anymore, so... Unless somebody really wants to keep it, I want to strike it. And I'm just going to keep suggesting it every time we do a syllabus episode until it works. <laughs> On the other hand, The Bloody Chamber and other stories, I think, works much better. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, and, and you wouldn't have to read all of them. I mean, you could you could pick and choose a couple of them. And we have Man Eaters, which I don't know that anybody... I mean, I think it fits, but like that might be something that's only in my version of the class, the comic. Yeah, and um, I think it was a, how the class is built. It could fit in yeah. with like Carrie and... Uh, looking at femininity and monstrosity, but you could also throw in Hellboy for just something different. Uh, next interesting thing I have is Monster at the end of this book. I think we can throw that in. I mean, you can read it in five minutes. I was going to say, I think that's the text you do your final exam essay on. <laughs> <laughs> so of the narrative text, we've got Prometheus Bound is one, two, Frankenstein, three, Selections from Paradise Lost, four was Carrie, five was The Monk, six was Beloved. Seven was us. Eight was Beyond Belief, the podcast. Nine was Night of the Living Dead. Ten was Zone One. Eleven was Angela Carter's The, uh, the Bloody Chamber and Other Stories. Twelve was The Monster at the End of the book, this Book. And thirteen was Where the Wild Things Are. Oh, and fourteen is The Great Goddamn on another page. So that's what we have now. Anything that we want to strike from that list, or do we have fourteen plus one theory? Sounds interesting. I want to take the class. I think uh, Monster at the End of the Book and Where the Wild Things Are, you can put together as one reading. That's half an hour together if you enjoy the pictures. Yeah, yeah. So I think you put that together so that can actually take it down to 13 weeks. 13 weeks sucks. I, think. <laughs> I don't think that's bad. It's a good range. It introduces some stuff they're familiar with with some yeah. and put some dialogue with things they're not familiar with. And you can do a couple of days where you, where you show a Buffy, you show a Penny Dreadful. You know, I think, I think that's a pretty good list. I teach the class. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I will teach the class. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we call this one? This is Monster, Tony Double Course. What, what do we call it? The monster and the self. I don't know. The monster. What, what, what is our actual overall theme? Sounds like it should be something like Monsters Are Us, but that's pretty silly title. <laughs> I, think, I think it only becomes silly if you spell it with just an R. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I wasn't thinking about that, but <laughs> that would make it silly. We can call it the monster at the end of this class. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Which yeah. actually fits in very well with us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we've resolved nothing, or we've resolved we've resolved something. This was kind of a resolution, kind of uh, exactly. making syllabi are hard. It is, it is definitely hard. Yeah, yes. uh, much like the last time, I think we have resolved that this is a list of texts that the listener can go and and check out. And yeah, I'm going to link all the ones we picked in the show notes, and then you can go through and just sort of try and guess from our long crazy conversation other stuff that you might want to read <laughs> but everyone needs to read zone one <laughs> that's what we resolved <laughs> uh well we should thank our guest mike had to leave but his information mike generous is he's been on the show enough times <laughs> his information will be linked in the show notes and heather where can people find you if they want to learn more uh well i actually i haven't uh, uh been doing a lot on um all those fun twittery platforms and whatnot so I would say um, I think my information is linked through the show in past episodes. So check me out there. Nicole, what about you? Where can people find you? Uh, I'm actually an enigma. Uh, unless you come to my class, you really can't find me anywhere on the internet. Other than here, so. That's fine. We, we do that with Wayne every week. <laughs> and John. Uh, you can also hear me on some episodes of the Protagonist podcast. In conjunction with this episode, I'm going to recommend episode Protagonist podcast episode 202 on Frankenstein. Make sure you listen to the end for a treat. Oh, oh God. You're, 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 you're going to make people listen to those puns. <laughs> There's a long stretch of, of Frankenstein puns at the end of that episode. I'm not 
I'm not making them do it. I'm giving them the choice to do it. It's it's a it's a thing. It's something. <laughs> it exists. <laughs> it is a thing that happened. Yes. Uh, uh, and Colin Drum Hannah. I mean, technically, you can find me on the protagonist podcast too, but not recently. Uh, <laughs> but, you can, but you can follow me on Twitter at Hanley Rogers, where you can listen to my nonsense. Um, probably about horror movies because it's October. Uh, you probably won't like what you find there. <laughs> I also don't know why anyone follows me. <laughs> uh, I, I guess you can actually find me on the protagonist as well. So I think it depends on, it depends on order of future happening podcast release. I might be on this week or next week. I don't remember it, you know, my past, the future. I hate time travel and podcast land. Everybody knows that. But you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Maverick or on my blog at www.chrismaverick.com. You can follow the show on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, all of those places at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where you can find out about new topics and you can contribute to the conversation and help us decide, you know, what we're going to talk about when we talk about a new episode. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or where the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor and write us a five-star review. If you write us a review, uh, five-star on iTunes and say a little something, it helps other people find the show. And if you don't, you're a monster and you deserve everything that you get. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I know. This is why nobody ever writes us reviews because I'm just mean to everybody. But, you know, but we'll be a happy monster like Grover if you if you write a, if you write a good review. So we appreciate it. I would like to thank Maximilian of Blockboard Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd once again like to thank all of our guests for joining us. I'd like to thank you at home for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Well, look at that. This is the end of the book, and the only one here is me. I, lovable, free old Grover, am the monster at the end of this book. And you were so scared. The end.